Good morning. Morning. Merry Christmas, everyone. I thought Jason was ending it right there. He's like, I heard a sermon once and not hearing it again. But no, no, we're, we're still good. You know what? This morning, I don't know about you, but I really like to watch Christmas movies. I don't know about you, but it's something I've always enjoyed watching Christmas movies. Now, when I was younger, things got a little crazy and I would start in like September and be watching my Christmas movies. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes at me. When I say when I was younger, I'm not talking about when I was nine. I'm talking about when I was about 29. But you know what? We've, we've pushed it a little bit. And now it's like mid-November. We kind of get it started. Um, bit of a nerd alert. There might be spreadsheets involved in me trying to figure out and fit them all in. Because there's nothing worse than Christmas Day coming and you miss that one movie. See, Tanya gets it. You've missed that one movie that you really wanted to watch with that group of people. Ah, uh, There's nothing worse than that. But Christmas movies, there's something that's different. There's a few things that are different about Christmas movies than any other types of movies. The first thing that's different about Christmas movies is the fact that they actually make you feel good. I can't think of a Christmas movie that gets to the end and you're like, oh, I feel sad now. That doesn't usually happen. The other thing about Christmas movies especially movies writ or made in the past 30 to 40 years, they almost always have a comedic part to them. They make you laugh. And there's something really special about gathering with friends and with family and just laughing with them. Isn't that awesome? I don't know. I, I think that's great. There's another thing about Christmas movies, though, and it's the fact that they have a way of ending in this really unrealistically happy tone. Like, it's like everything's against them, and then the world is perfect. So I have a few examples here. I have, I have some Christmas movies here. Uh, you probably recognize most of them. But in each of these movies, there was a moment in that movie that it was awful. Things were low. They were bad. Like when Rudolph realized his nose was different than everyone else's nose. That was a low moment for Rudolph. And then Ebenezer Scrooge, he's like this greedy jerk. And then he gets haunted by three ghosts. He wasn't having a good day when that happened. And then George Bailey, it's a wonderful life. And I, I really like that movie. And some people, not mention any names, Madison, make fun of me because I like this movie. But George Bailey is like, He's this aspiring world traveler. He's this idealistic guy, and he's going to do all these things, but he gets stuck in the middle of boring town, USA, just doing boring things in a boring life. And then again, there is Elf. Now, I didn't recognize Jason was as much like Elf as possible, but if you think about the plot of that movie, the really down part is when a 40-year-old man recognizes finally, after 40 years, that he's living with Christmas elves. I guess that is a bit of a low moment. But the thing is, with Christmas movies, it always works out, right? It always works out. Even when you can't see any path to it working out, it works out. Almost like a bit of Christmas magic. Like Rudolph, of course, his nose is the reason it saves Christmas. And Scrooge, after living decades and decades as a miserable, miserable man, changes everything about his outlook at life. How he treats people, how he talks to people. Just in a few hours. And then George Bailey talks about all the terrible things that are happening. Then all of a sudden he recognizes he's surrounded by friends and family. And they actually say at the end of the movie, he is the richest man in town. And then of course, Buddy the Elf finds 
his real dad, and reconciles with him. And of course, it ends happily ever after. Syrup on spaghetti and all. The other thing with all of these movies are the main character of these movies are searching for meaning. They're looking for purpose. They want to find a way that they're not going to be ordinary. They don't want to be just another person. There's no child that when they're seven or nine or 13 is like, you know what my dream is? I want to grow up and be ordinary. No one's ever said that. No one's ever said that. There's something in us that wants our lives to count, isn't there? And it's why over the years, there's been thousands of books, tens of thousands of books that have been written. They're in the self-help section. If you go to an actual like physical bookstore in Amazon, there's a self-help section. And it's all these things that teach you how to be successful and how to grow and how to make more money and make more friends, how to have an impact on the world around you. Because we all want to have that impact. In fact, I accidentally stumbled on a couple terms as I was researching for this. The first one is this, coinophobia. I think that's how you say it. It is the fear of living an ordinary life. Apparently, it's a real thing. I didn't even make it up. The next one is a little different. I've heard of YOLO before, you only live once. Well, there's something that's called FOBO, the fear of being ordinary. Apparently, it's a thing. There's something inside all of us we want to matter. Like there's a piece of us that wants our lives to count and wants our lives to be remembered. Now, this morning, I am going to be sharing a bit of the Christmas story. As it is a week before Christmas, that makes a lot of sense. I'm also going to be sharing a little snippet of a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in a small uh, section from Acts. But it's all talking about this thing. This whole idea that we want to matter. We want to matter. And there is a way that we can matter. There is a surefire way that you won't find in a lot of the books that we will matter. We will make an impact maybe on the whole world or maybe it's just on our world. Bit of a spoiler alert before we get there. It's not as much about you as you might at first think. Now we're in the, in the third week of this series, The Family Tree of Jesus. And, and in week one, Pastor Nathan started with this scripture in Matthew. And it says this in Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, dot, dot, dot. And goes on with the Christmas story that we hear so often. The thing he pointed out is that starts at verse 18. And he talked about the details that are in the 17 verses before. Which are actually a verbal picture of the family tree of Jesus. And the statement at the end of Nathan's message was that outsiders are included in the Christmas story, because the Christmas story is for outsiders. Not just the Christmas story, but the entire family tree of Jesus. Outsiders were included. And then last week, Andrew talked about some of the superstars, for better or worse. But he talked about some of the big names of the Old Testament, Abraham and David. And how despite our moral failures and the things we do wrong, God can use us in a spectacular way. Christmas reminds us, that we can write a new story with Christ. Which brings us to this week. In the sermon titled Out of the Ordinary. And I want to talk about how God works out of and through the ordinary. Now I'm not going to read through all those names in the genealogy. If you want to see someone stumble over all those words. Go to week one. You can watch that video. Nate actually did a really good job. But 
I'm not going to be going through all of that. But the one thing I noticed, a pattern I noticed as you go through those 17 verses, if for every one that we actually know something about, that we're familiar somewhat about, there's three or four that are really ordinary. And I'm assuming some of them are ordinary because we just don't know anything about them. See, last week, Andrew talked about Abraham and he talked about David. Kind of the glory and the shame, but we know that they were important. But there's some other people on that list, and we're like, why are they there? They seem less than spectacular. The first one I thought of was Ram. When I read through the genealogy and see, maybe it's just because it's a short word I know how to pronounce. Maybe that's why it stuck out. But I see Ram, who is one of the fathers who begot some people and was begotten by some people, and he's kind of in the middle. And Ram, we don't know much about him. So what am I going to say about him? So we'll go to number two. Number two is Azor. Azor, I also know nothing about. And you guys are like, this is a great sermon. He's going to list all these names, say I know nothing about them. Azor, though, sticks out to me because Azor actually has a cool name. If you think about it, when I first looked at the whole genealogy, I'm looking at all the names. There's like all old-fashioned weird names. Azor could be an avenger. Azor, defender of the universe, right? I don't know. That's what I think of when I see Azor. And all my research, I couldn't really find anything besides that. And that may not be accurate. But Azor is number two. Number three, and this one I actually have a bit of information, but it's not all good news. Jeconiah. Another great baby name. Jeconiah. We do know a little bit about this man. We know that he became king at the age of 18. And we know that all the days of his life, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we are not going to model ourselves after Jeconiah, but he is in the family tree of Jesus, which brings us to the last one of this group that I wanted to talk about, and that is Mathen. Now, the reason Mathen stood out to me is Mathen is actually the great-grandfather of Jesus. He's the great-grandfather of Jesus. And though it's fun to look back all those generations, on both sides of my family, um, we have some family trees there, and I love, I find it fascinating. Again, a bit of a nerd. I find it really fascinating. Go back seven, eight, nine generations. See what those, those people way back in my heritage had done with their lives and the good things and the not so good. That, like, I find that interesting. But my great grandfather is someone I actually met when I was a kid. I actually remember there's a personal connection with my great grandfather. And while we don't see anything in scripture saying that Jesus met Mathen, there's a chance. It's probably unlikely, but there's a chance, which was just really interesting to me. But this brings me to a question that Nathan touched on in week one, and it is, why do these people matter? Why do all of these names matter? And I want to answer that with a story. Last Christmas, Carolyn and I came to the startling revelation that our children, for years, have been snooping for presents and have basically found every single present that they have got the last couple of years. I know, gasp. Now, before we judge them too harshly, I would like a raise of hands. If you have never, ever snooped or found out a Christmas present, please raise your hand. Okay, some of the hands I'm seeing are more believable. First service, Kelly Wilson put up his hand. I was like, there's no way. No way with you, Mike. But anyways, they snooped and found their presents. We found out the extent of this. And we also found out who the ringleader was. The ringleader was right here. It was my daughter, Kayla. 
She was the ringleader. Now pay attention to the mask. That is an important part of this story. She was the ringleader, but she had three very willing accomplices. Two of them are here looking like they don't know what I'm talking about. And actually, before I go on, I do have to confess. I was talking to Joni and she trapped me and made me say this. But I was a snooper myself. Kayla comes about it very honestly. (laughs) There's a reason still to this day. I am 42, I think. Yes, I am 42. And my mom will not put Christmas presents out until right before we're opening them. But this isn't about me. Anyways, this is the fiend we want to talk about. So they find all of these presents. And of course, we got them these snorkel masks, which make a lot of sense for our family. Our family loves the outdoors. And we love the lake. And they love snorkeling. And they like looking at all the cool creatures that are underneath the surface of the water. All the reasons their Aunt Madison won't swim in lakes. They like to look at those things and try and catch them and all that. So this gift made sense. But it was the gift we saved to the very end this Christmas. Which sometimes means that it's going to be a bit bigger of a gift. Spoiler alert, there won't be one of those this year. But anyways... It was the last gift. But again, we all knew. They knew what it was. We knew that they knew. It was this weird thing. The thing that they didn't know is that attached to these scuba masks or snorkeling masks, Carolyn had made a little ticket that outlined the date and the resort that we were going to be going to in just a couple months. And that changed the gift a little bit. And it surprised them. They didn't find that. And it was pretty cool to see them. We actually have a short video of, of one of our kids when they realized, they're like, oh, a snorkel mask, because they all knew, of course. And then they're like, oh, wow. And then he re- we're going to Cuba? And it was like this exciting moment. And honestly, there was lots of gifts last Christmas morning, lots of good gifts and thoughtful gifts. That's the one that produced the most excitement. Why? Was it because of the snorkel mask? No, it was because of what was connected to it, which was the trip to Cuba. Which brings us back to this genealogy. All of those people matter. All of them are significant because they are connected to Jesus. Which brings me to the Christmas story. So as you know, as you go through Luke, and you may have heard this story in church before. You could have heard it in TV shows. If you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas, you have heard the Christmas story before. But it starts with an angel appearing to Mary and saying, you are going to bear a child. But this won't just be any child. This is going to be the son of God. This was going to be the Messiah that was coming. To which Mary is like, who me? Like, how is this possible? Like, I haven't even been with a man. This doesn't seem possible. A few verses later, she's just humbled. You read in Mary's song how she is humbled. How could God have chosen me? But then if we go forward a few verses, I'm going to read a few verses here in Luke chapter 2. And it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And I read this story and I think it's actually a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story because I've heard it for years now. Year upon year upon year and I hear it. And of course I get some of the context. But if you take this story out of its context and just read this story, it's actually rather ordinary. It actually screams ordinary in a lot of the details. Think about it. This story starts with a government census. What is more boring than a government census? If I went to chapters and I was looking for biographies to read and I opened one and it started with a government census, I would close that book, I would put it back and I would pick something else. That's what this story starts with. It's a government census. Then, of course, there's the parents that God chooses for Jesus, which are Mary and Joseph. They're not the son and daughter of some earthly royalty. They're not that. They're regular people. They're ordinary people. And then, of course, there's Bethlehem. Now, we've heard of Bethlehem a lot because of this story. But in that time, and even in the Old Testament, the references of Bethlehem were talking about it being an insignificant little town. It literally says that in Micah 5. Bethlehem being an insignificant little town. And then, of course, the place where Mary has this baby, which, as I was thinking about this, I feel like the inn would have been a bad option too. But anyways, I don't know. I've, I've been there for a few of my kids being born. That feels not ideal. But that wasn't even available. So they had to go to a stable for Jesus to be born. And then Jesus... The long-awaited Messiah, the savior of the world, was wrapped in some rags. And the little Lord Jesus took his first nap in an animal's feeding trough. All feels pretty ordinary, not very spectacular. And if you read in Isaiah 53, which is in the Old Testament, and it's a prophet that talks about Jesus being born in his life and his death. But even when he talks about it there, he talks about how this Messiah, when he would come, he wouldn't be seen as beautiful to people. In fact, most people wouldn't even notice he's coming. They use the example of a plant. When you plant a seed and just that first little sprout just comes out of the ground, especially if you're in a field or something, nobody notices that. You might notice when it blooms, but you don't notice in that moment. But Jesus, even though he was fully God and he was fully man, He wasn't exceptional in any physical way. Despite what maybe some cartoon renditions of the Christmas story may have told you, Jesus was not born and instantly have a halo above his head. He didn't do that. He wasn't seven feet tall. He didn't, we don't read anything that he had six pack abs and like all these muscles. He couldn't fly. He couldn't even leap over any tall buildings. Jesus was pretty regular in his physical appearance when he was born. See, the Christmas story is a beautiful story, but in isolation, honestly, it's nothing that Matthew and Luke should have been writing about. It's nothing that we should even be talking about right now, but here we are. We know that this story matters because Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, a perfect life that nobody else has lived. He walked around and he led with love, absolutely selfless love. Not only that, he healed people that came to him. He taught people that no one had taught with the authority he taught with before, and no one has since. And then he died. He died on a cross. This, this person that did all these great things died on a cross for you and for me. And then he rose again so that we might have eternal life. 
He actually made a way, as Nathan mentioned, for outsiders to be included. He made a way for us when we sin and fall short to have grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. But there's something else really cool that Jesus did. Jesus invited us into his mission to tell other people the good news about Jesus. The good news of the gospel. But he was pretty specific on how this was going to be accomplished. He had given us talents and skills and gifts. And every person that's listening to this message, we have those gifts. And God will use those gifts. But that's not how it was going to work. No, it was actually all about our connection to him. Which brings me to 1 Corinthians 1. Now to give you a little bit of context for this, this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And they're arguing about, I'm following the way that Paul follows Jesus. I'm following the way that Cephas follows Jesus. And they're arguing between these two or three people. And Paul's like, what are you guys talking about? Nobody's following me. Nobody's following Peter or Apollos. We're following Jesus. And it We pick it up here in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, Jesus chose not to use the powerful or the noble. He chose to use the weak, the despised, the foolish and the lowly. See, instead of nobility, which was kind of the way things happened back then, he actually chose to use a bunch of nobodies. Instead of nobility, he chose to use nobodies. Look at the apprentices that Jesus had. His chief apprentice or disciple was Peter. Now, Peter was a fisherman. There's nothing wrong with being a fisherman, but you are not very many rungs up on the social ladder if you're a fisherman. And not only that, Peter had a tendency to run his mouth and do stupid things to which we can say, yes, we qualify too. I can do that. Jesus used Peter. Jesus used the foolish. And then we look at another one of the apprentices of Jesus. It was Matthew. who was a tax collector. He was literally despised by everyone around him except maybe the invading people that were in their land, but they didn't really like him either. Nobody liked him. Jesus used the despised. In John 6, we read a story about Jesus teaching and then he pulls away, but people follow him. And these people are hungry. There's over 5,000 people that need to be fed. And Jesus, as a test, asked one of his disciples, what are we going to do? Do we have enough money? And it's like, no, we don't have enough money. So what does Jesus use? He uses the weak. He uses a little boy that has five loaves and two fish. That was just enough ordinary for Jesus to do the extraordinary. Which brings us to the Christmas story in the shepherds. Who were the first people that got invited to see baby Jesus? I don't know about your experience, but I remember when our kids were born, it was close family. It was your parents, your brothers. Those are the people, your closest friends. Those are the people that came. And who did God invite first? It was shepherds. 
Again, nothing wrong with being a shepherd, but not very high up the social ladder. It wasn't a king that was invited. It was not a religious leader that was invited. It was not the intellectuals of the age that were invited. It was shepherds. And typically when we think of shepherds, we think of middle-aged men in a field. While there could have been some of those, it was very typical for shepherds to also be the youngest in the family. It's very likely that among those shepherds were a number of, of male and female teenagers. Those were the people that the angel came and said, Jesus is here, Savior of the world, and they were some of the first to see Jesus. The common thread with all of them and the common thread with us is they were nobodies. I'm not saying that you or I don't have value. We have so much intrinsic value. God created us just how we are. But in the grand scheme of things, if we want to accomplish great things in this world, we are nobodies. We, just like them, would have maybe suffered from feelings of phobo, the fear of being ordinary. The truth is, there was nothing spectacular about any of them. Just like there was nothing spectacular, really, about Azor or some of the others that I mentioned before. The truth is, and it was in those verses in Corinthians, is we don't have anything to boast about. We don't have anything to boast about. If there's anything eternal we have to boast about, it is all in him. It's all when we're connected to him. I think about the significance that we try and have in ourselves and try and produce, but honestly, it is all in him. It's when we allow God to take the broken pieces of us and let his light and his love and his power shine out of us. That's when we're going to have an impact on our world. A great example of that is found in the book of Acts. Again, to give you a bit of context, in Acts 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is sent. He fills up the believers. They have God literally in them. In chapter 3, Peter and John, two of the, the apostles, are going for a walk. And there's a crippled man, and he asks for money. And they're like, we don't have money, but we have Jesus. They grab him by the hand, and he gets up. He is totally and miraculously healed. And then the predictable happens. In chapter 4, you know what chapter 4 starts with? It starts with religious leaders that are annoyed by Peter and John for the words they're speaking, the converts they're getting, the power with which they work. And then we pick this up in Acts 4. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, not Peter, not John, he wasn't like, it was my talent, it was my skill. No, it is all about Jesus. It was by him that this man is standing before you well. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and this is awesome, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. To me, this is so encouraging, because there's a part of me that wants to be something great on my own, but it's so encouraging knowing that when I know myself, I know I'm a pretty common guy. There's a lot of areas I'm pretty uneducated But I know if I connect myself to Jesus, what amazing things can occur. I find it very telling that they actually recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
which is very telling. They stood out. These people were literally turning the world upside down. Don't forget the context of this. In this time, thousands of people were putting their belief and trust in Jesus each and every day. Thousands of people. There was great things happening, but it wasn't because of them. And Peter was sure that they knew this. This was because of something greater. Charles Spurgeon says this. God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks your weakness. He has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Which is my question for myself and my question for you this morning. Will you not wield your weakness to him or yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? In our journey to find a worthy purpose, are we willing for this not to be about us? Are we willing to start here where we lean into his strength? This question applies to all of us. It it applies to you. If you've been to every church service for 20 years, this applies to you. If you are not even can, or consider yourself a Christian, this question applies to you. If you're new in your faith, this applies to you. If you used to be a Christian and now want nothing to do with God, this question applies to you. See, it's not fun to feel weak, so we try and avoid it. Last year, I had a, a hernia operation, and for a couple weeks, I couldn't do anything. And Carolyn had to like lift stuff for me that it was like embarrassing. I'm like, I can't, I literally can't do anything right now. It was an awful feeling, but how sweet and how beautiful is it that that's kind of how God wants us to come to him. Say, God, I don't have what it takes, but I know you do. I know I'm ordinary, but I know you are so far beyond ordinary. And listen, we can, we can build ourselves up. We can take courses. We can get degrees, we can read books and we can work hard and we can accomplish some great things. But it's not until we connect ourselves to Jesus that we will do anything that is eternally great in this world. And maybe this morning I've been talking about being connected to Jesus a lot. You're like, what does that even mean? Well, being connected to Jesus means following him. It means doing life how he does life. It means putting our trust in him, trusting God with our life, trusting God in our parenting, in our marriage, in our friendships, in our finances, in our job, means putting our trust in him. And as we do this, what we're going to find, I'm just warning you, what we're going to find is often we're going to feel like the kid with five loaves and two fish, and there's 5,000 people, and we're like, God, we can't do that. To which he says, perfect. This is where I step in. And this is why it's so important that we be connected to Jesus. And actually a really beautiful and simple way to put this is something I heard last week. Now, many of you may not know this, but about eight o'clock every morning in these first three rows right here, uh, usually the band, the tech crew, and a few of the staff meet and we, we call it our morning huddle. And Jason leads this huddle. He inspires us with his words. He lays out the order of service and we all talk about who's coming up when and who's leading what songs and we do all that. But at the end, we pray together. And last week, a few different people prayed and I don't really remember what anyone said except one person. And I don't even his prayer, I don't remember 95% of it, but I remember his words that he ended his prayer with. 
And I think it applies here. He said, we love you, we trust you, and we say yes to you, Jesus. We love you, we trust you, we say yes to you, Jesus. That's what it means to be connected to him. As Nathan mentioned a few weeks ago, there is that moment. And maybe that's you this morning, that first moment where you say, God, I don't even know what this fully means, but I want to be connected to you. I want to put my trust in you. And I would encourage you to do that. And that's a piece of this, but that's a moment. That prayer is also a journey. It's saying yes to Jesus. It's saying yes to spending time with him in worship, reading our Bible and praying. How else else will we get to know him? How else will people recognize that we had been with Jesus? How else will we have what is far more than what we have in us? We need to say yes to learning to love others as Jesus did. We need to say yes to not taking the credit ourselves, but boasting in the the Lord. We need to say yes to living life in his way, in his rhythms, in his power. It's not easy, but it's really just a bunch of yeses that we're going to do. And if this is a journey that you've never started, or maybe you, you did start, but you've fallen away, If you want to talk to someone or pray with someone, I am available after service. Please come see me. If someone brought you, make sure to talk to them. If you're hearing these words and you're like, you know what? I'm intrigued, but I'm not there yet. There is a next step. I would say the next step is a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Nathan wrapped up his series called You're Not Jesus with a message called Lose the Cape. And I would encourage you to watch it. Even if you were here that morning, even if you watched it, I would encourage you to watch it again. I think that will help you on your journey. This Christmas, I hope that we remember the significance of the Christmas story. So though it's important that we got those details in those first 17 verses, the Christmas story isn't about Jesus' parents. It's not about his grandparents. It's not about Mathen. It's not about his great-great-great-grandparents. It's not about Azor. It's not about um, Ram. It's not about David. It's not about a stable. It's not about angels. It's not about wise men. It's about Jesus. The whole story is about Jesus. The whole story has significance because it is connected to Jesus. The significance and the relevance of that story, why it's beautiful and not just an ordinary boring story, is because of Jesus. Because it's not an ordinary story. It's actually the greatest story, the greatest love story ever told, but it's all because of Jesus. It was about Jesus, and today, 2,000 years later, it's still all about Jesus. Can I pray? Father, thank you. Thank you for today. God, here we sit, here we stand, here we are, God. We want to be connected to you, Father. Thank you for this beautiful story. Thank you for this opportunity to be connected to you, Father. And God, this morning... I can think of no simpler, no better way to say it than God. I trust you. I love you. And I say yes to you, God. And for each person in this place that is praying that very same thing, God, I pray that you would meet us in a special and unique and more powerful way than ever before, God. Father, I pray that we would not limit you by the limitations we see in ourselves, God. That we would leverage the gifts you've given us, Father. But Father, we would learn to lean on our weakness and connect ourselves to you, Father. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this season where we can remember you, God. And we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to connect to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.